Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. This is Le Show. There are numerous news stories this week about um, what appear to be horrifying incidents in Syria one more time. There are not numerous news stories about what we have good reason to believe are a continuation of horrifying incidents in uh, Yemen and in other parts of the world. And so to widen the focus of what we uh, think is worth paying attention to, I have a, a special guest here on the program today. Uh, he's Dr. Homer Venters. He's a physician, and he's also director of programs for Physicians for Human Rights. And um, he came to my attention because I, I happen to be on a list that receives updates on some of what PHR is doing and and w- witnessing in various parts of the world. Uh, Dr. Venters, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be here and join you. Thanks. Um, the 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 proximate cause of of my paying attention to you in this way is your reporting your organization's reporting on the plight uh i'm sure no community of people wants to uh be understood as having a plight but uh these people do uh, uh the plight of the rohingya uh people in uh what, what who used to be in um, myanmar what we used to call burma and are now uh, located in refugee, most of them in refugee camps uh, across the border in um, Bangladesh, I believe. Um, tell me a little about, uh, first of all, what Physicians for Human Rights is, and then we'll get to what you know. Sure. Um, Physicians for Human Rights, uh, or PHR, is an international human rights organization, and so we use the power of science and medicine uh, to tell the truth about what's happened uh, in human rights abuses. Uh, so we leverage the skills of doctors, uh, forensic scientists, and we also train doctors and others around the world to use evidence to document the truth uh, of what's happened. And so, you know, we were very active um, 30 years ago when we were just getting going um, in documenting the uh, horrible impact of landmines in Cambodia. It really led to a really important treaty to ban landmines. There have been since then quite a few other places um, really in Iraq, uh, documenting sarin attacks by uh, Saddam Hussein, up through um, Bosnia, the Balkans, I should say, and uh, Rwanda uh, and other places, using forensic medicine and the the power of this type of documentation to tell the truth of mass atrocities and also to train other people around, around the world to do the same thing. So when you refer to Saddam Hussein and the sarin attacks, those were the attacks on the Kurds? Yes, that's right. Habjala is a, a one particular uh, town where about 5,000 Kurds uh, were gassed. And it was actually, I think, art- artillery shells with a combination of three different agents. But uh, PHR uh, forensic scientists were able to come in four years later, I believe it was, after the attacks. And it was the first time, actually, that we'd anybody had been able to document the presence of the byproducts of mustard gas and of sarin in the soil and the other, like, uh, areas around a village. It wasn't, you know, we didn't have ready access to any of these places, obviously, as the attacks unfolded. Obviously, uh, Saddam Hussein was smarter than that. Um, But it does speak to the point that uh, chemical weapons don't just go away. They leave residues and markers that can be identified sometime later. 
Yeah, that's right. I think that you know the most effective documentation um, that we've so, for instance, the attacks last April in Syria by the Syrian government. You know, their samples were collected by UN and, and other inspectors pretty quickly, uh, and that actually led to not only identification that sarin had been used, but what was really impressive was that they, the the best evidence we have that's been reported in the press is that there is actual internal documentation showing that the actual sarin used and identified through laboratory analysis had already been cataloged as one of the Syrian uh, government stockpiles back in uh, 2013 when they were kind of forced into joining this convention against uh, uh, the use of chemical weapons. So that was part of the stockpile that supposedly they they gave up or destroyed. Exactly. So let's get back. Let's go go now. Let's whip around the world and go to uh, the border between Burma or Myanmar and Bangladesh and the and the Rohingya people. Um, just a little background. What I know is that. Uh, the Rohingya are a Muslim minority in a majority Buddhist country that they are regarded at least by a segment of the population in Myanmar as uh, interlopers. Uh, they, I believe, have not been granted uh, citizenship even though they've been residing in Myanmar for uh, decades, if not more, uh, and that recently in the last few years there have been some demonstrations which has which have provoked or uh, been used as pretext by the army, depending on your interpretation, to um, engage in wholesale movement of the Rohingya people out of their homes, out of their communities, which have then been burned to the ground, uh, and that they have been basically pushed over the border into some fairly... Um, Unpleasant and an unequipped uh, refugee camps on the other side. Is that uh, how how close do I have it to what's been going on? That's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty tight synopsis. Um, I think that the you know they are one of multiple ethnic minorities uh, in Myanmar that's been subject to persecution for quite a long time. Uh, we at PHR you know were reporting maybe a year and a half ago that we thought there were the precursors to genocide actually ongoing. Uh, certainly in August, this wasn't the first time that thousands of uh, Rohingya fled across the border to escape uh, persecution and, and physical and sexual assault. Um, but this obviously was a much larger uh, and more coordinated campaign that was sold or at least messaged as an anti-terror campaign. But, you know, we've had three uh, field missions, uh, doctors going to um, the Cox's Bazaar area where these camps are, where you have about 650,000 mm. uh, Rohingya packed into a very small space. And we've been doing um, forensic uh, assessments. That means hearing what people's uh, account is, but doing physical examination uh, of injuries uh, and scars among women, among very small children and men too. And we're putting together that evidence now. But, you know, it's very clear that... Uh, in a particular, in a couple of villages, we've really dug into that these were very coordinated campaigns that involved uh, armed forces of uh, the government of Myanmar acting in concert with um, local Rakhine uh, civilians who are Buddhist, who are not Rohingya, um, to uh, both lay out uh, a campaign, that is to plan a campaign, to give ultimatums uh, in the week or two before um, and to escalate over months the 
baseline persecution, but then to lay out ultimatums about the acceptance of these identity cards that, as you referenced, would say, you know, would give up a citizenship claim, and then to execute these attacks, these really vicious, horrible attacks that, you know, clearly have led to the deaths of thousands, uh, involved wide-scale sexual abuse as well, and then the pursuit of people across the border. Uh, uh, Rakhine is the name of the state, the province of uh, Myanmar in which the, the Rohingya have lived for this, this period of time. Um, when you say thousands of people, do you have any any more precision of an estimate as to how many people may have been killed in this action so far? Yeah, I think that we have you know some preliminary numbers. So Doctors Without Borders or MSF has done a preliminary analysis that's um, you know just south of ten thousand. Um, that through survey tools, they've estimated um, the number of deaths. I think that we all think that that's conservative. Um, We don't know. I think that there's a need for greater documentation, um, not only uh, of the number of people killed, but, you know, we have seen so many survivors that have physical injuries uh, that also clearly have been, um, are survivors of sexual abuse. And that was just like in Rwanda and just like in uh, the Balkans. It's clear that the the wide scale uh, use and planning of uh, sexual assault was part of this campaign to uh, destroy and displace uh, the Rohingya from um, from Myanmar. And and when you talk to the people, uh, I, I imagine you're. Well, no, you, I don't have to imagine. You mentioned your your people have been in Cox's Bazaar, which is this fairly wretched refugee camp in uh, Bangladesh. What do the Rohingya say they're told about why this is happening to them? What do they, what do they say that, that they're told by the army or whoever, whatever officials are uh, encountering them and, and pushing them out? Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of these encounters myself, uh, the forensic encounters with survivors. And, you know, people, we ask a lot of questions about what you know, this sounds very horrific, but what were people saying as they were shooting you? What mm. were people saying as they were raping you mm. or setting your house on fire or killing your child? Because mm-hmm. it, those actually, that information is critical to establishing some of the criteria for these mass crimes and establishing these these uh, these very important criteria for was this widespread um, at all? And so I think that the and was it systematic? Those are the two things we look for. And so people tell us that as these things were going on and in the run-up to the attacks, they were being told, not only do you not belong here, but you're not from here. You can't be here. You'll be killed if you're here. Um, and it's you know because different military units and different groups of Rakhine uh, Buddhist civilians were involved, we got a, a you know a, some comments being focused more on this land doesn't belong to you, you can't ever come back here. And another set of comments focused on uh, you will be eliminated. You, your people will not exist anymore. Does it, were they, did they include references to uh, the fact that these people were of a different religion than the people who were talking to them? Yeah, I think that the, the, the comments were often that we've collected. You know, we've done about 81 about 80 encounters with survivors. And, and so most commonly it was about the, the otherness mm. of 
the um, of the Rohingya people, and part of it sometimes there were comments about the religion, but I think that most commonly it was simply that they were viewed as foreigners that have should have no rights and should have no place in their own homes. When did the Rohingya begin living in Myanmar or Burma as it was then? You know, um, I am not the most uh, – I'm not the best historian on the the history of the Rohingya. I will say that my sense is that the Rohingya, like a lot of ethnic minorities, were actually living in this space uh, before kind of the current borders were constituted. And so the Rohingya will almost – will say uh, we didn't come – to Burma, Burma came to us, mm-hmm. and I've heard more than one person. I've had more than one person survivor tell me that. Are they physically different in appearance from from the people, other people in the community? I think that the the thing that we that I notice as a you know a lay person in terms of not being a, an expert in the culture is uh, the language and also the um, the dress. So you know, as uh, many of the the women were wear a different and more conservative uh, attire, um, and that also. You know, we see that, um, to your question about religion, um, we see that some of the targeting of killings and sexual assault uh, did revolve around religion. So, like, I can think of multiple survivors who told me that one of the first people to be killed in their village would be the imam. Mm -hmm. They have been sitting, uh, sitting is probably the inappropriate uh, verb, in that camp now, many of them for close to a year, if not more. Is that right? Yeah, the the, the violence really erupted August uh, of 2017, um, and most of the exodus happened between the end of August and, let's say, the beginning of uh, the middle or end of October. Um, the, the Cox's Bazaar is the town, but then it's about 45 minutes outside of that town where you have this network of camps where they used to be kind of discrete camps uh, that's, that kind of stretched along this this finger that dangles down uh, along the, the Bangladesh-Myanmar uh, border. And that uh, little strip of land, now you really can't tell one camp from the other. So the names of these camps that a, a lot of people have seen in press reports, like Kudapalong, Balankali, um, Thangkali, those camps all now uh, just – are one large mass of people uh, having gone from, you know, maybe 50,000, 60,000 people in all these areas in July of last year to 650,000 uh, people now. A good-sized city. Yes, yes. And um, you have people there to attend to their uh, medical needs, do you? Uh, so there are... Quite a few groups, a real, you know, Herculean um, uh, assemblage of humanitarian uh, organizations, Doctors Without Borders, uh, Med Global, other organizations that are coming together to provide all the kind of essential services. But the there are many challenges to that. One is that people are so packed together, much more tightly packed. When you measure how much space, personal space, a person has in a refugee camp uh, by square meters. You know, they have about half as much space or a third as much space as you would in a normal refugee camp. So people are very tight. The other thing is that it's very hilly and it's uh, about to rain there. The monsoon season is coming. And so what we saw just at the tail of last year's monsoons when people were coming over is 
you know, these camps are very hilly. There will be mudslides. There's really a concern for a widespread outbreak of, of cholera, um, other communicable uh, diseases that, you know, it's almost uh, impossible, even with real dedication by the government of Bangladesh and the coalition of uh, NGOs to, to stave off real, very dire health consequences. Just f- physically, are they residing in huts or tents? Yeah. Or- yeah, they're, uh, I know because probably two-thirds of my uh, forensic evaluations have been done in these little living quarters and um, as like a kind of like chunky white guy who's 6'3", it's a little tough to fit in. But mm. um, they're, they're, it's actually incredible to watch people put these together. They take very thin slivers of bamboo, weave them together uh, in a structure that could be, you know, four feet high. And then they will lace uh, uh, plastic, like just plastic that you would have wrap, wrapping plastic into these structures. And then they'll have some bigger uh, pieces of bamboo for the, the the main parts of the structure. And so these, um, when you look at the camps, when you really look closely at the, the just the, the unending horizon of structures, what these structures are, are these small, flimsy uh, bamboo and plastic uh, huts. So obviously... No heating, no cooling. They're they're there in the in the whatever weather there is, and a bit of shelter from from the monsoon at best, right? That's right. We'll take a break, and then continue our conversation with Dr. Homer Venters of Physicians for Human Rights here on the show. Some things I've heard. Everybody's crying mercy and don't know the meaning of the word. A bad enough situation is sure enough getting worse. Everybody's crying justice, just as long as it's business first. Toe to toe, touch and go. Give a cheer, give you souvenir. People running round in circles don't know what they're headed for. Everybody's crying peace on earth just as soon as we win this war.
believe the things I'm seeing. I wonder about some things I've heard. Everybody's crying mercy and don't know the meaning of the word. A bad enough situation is sure enough getting worse. Everybody's crying just as, just as long as it's business first. Straight ahead, knock them dead. Pack your kid, choose your hypocrite. Oh, oh, oh. Well, you don't have to go off Broadway to see something plain absurd. Everybody's crying mercy and don't know the meaning of the word. Everybody's crying mercy and don't know the meaning of the word. This is Le Show, and we continue now our conversation with Dr. Homer Venters of Physicians for Human Rights. The Bangladesh government uh, is, finds itself now with the job of uh, attending to the needs of a city of uh, 650,000 people. Uh, in the, what little I know about Bangladesh suggests that they're not swimming in resources to handle a job like this. Uh, that's uh, Yeah, that's very true. It's one of the poorest nations and also I think one of the most densely populated nations on the earth now has an even more densely populated and even more poor cohort of people to care for. Uh, I will say that the the and I just recently was at a, a, an event where uh, I was on a panel with a, a representative of the government of Bangladesh, and they have very publicly said, you know, we are a nation that does not have a lot of resources, but we will take care of the people that are here. And so there has been um, real up to this point, generally very good. Um, interaction, I think, between the Rohingya. Certainly, I've talked to imams and village headmen and others who have told me it's very important to them to make sure that their colleagues, the Rohingya, um, uh, understand and express how much of a strain this is on the government of Bangladesh. And because the risk of return is that they be killed or raped and killed, the Rohingya are at, you know, great, they take great pains to express appreciation for the safe haven, even in spite of some very difficult uh, circumstances. The, just to give people a, a more rounded view, the country of Bangladesh is, is majority Muslim? Yes. So uh, is it correct to say that the uh, anti-Rohingya forces in Myanmar regard Bangladesh as their proper quote unquote home or that's where they in 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 the Myanmar version of events that's where they came from that's where they should be going back to yeah i i i can think of a a, a man i saw who had both of his uh legs broken with a rifle butt by Myanmar soldiers and as he was being beaten uh with his hands tied behind his back the soldiers were yelling at him, you're Bengali, you're Bengali, you have to go to Bangladesh. And he wasn't the only person that told me that, that he heard that as uh, either one was being shot or killed or raped. How many times have you, have you been over there? Uh, twice. Mm-hmm. And how many people does your organization have uh, uh, available to be uh, there from time to time? 
You know, so we the, the way PHR works is um, we have a, a relatively small staff of permanent em, uh, employees like myself uh, as the director of the programs, but we have a network of probably 2,000 doctors around the world. And so uh, when I have um, led trips to Bangladesh, uh, we have been able to mobilize uh, primarily um, South Asian female physicians to come with us. Um, emergency medicine doctors, doctors who have skills that I don't as an internist, um, and who are going to, you know, have a better, uh, I think, quicker cultural connection with people on the ground. And so uh, we have taken, I think, so far seven or eight different doctors to the area, and our plan is to continue to grow this cadre so that we can do more of this documentation, both for uh, a the advocacy that we need to do right now, but also for uh, ultimate accountability. The the word accountability brings up, I think, what most Americans know about this situation, which is that uh, Myanmar is supposedly uh, being run now, although that this is open to question. The military is still uh, re- retains a lot of power, but run now by a civilian by the name of, uh, name of Aung San Suu Kyi, who uh, famously won a Nobel Peace Prize uh, for her work over there. Um, I think what people who have paid just a a passing attention to this story uh, are struck by is that particular irony. It's really a a, a terribly upside-down part of this tragedy that someone who was recognized as a champion of human rights has, you know, through her own voice or the voice of her office and her spokespeople, called into question the veracity of women who say they were sexually assaulted by the by the the military. So, um, it is a a horrible feature of this, um, but it does also support what we think is ultimately the 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 needed step in accountability, which is prosecutions in the International Criminal Court. Who 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 is empowered to bring those? Well, that is uh, an interesting question. I should say I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> so Neither am I, doctors, so you're, we're even. <laughs> doctors love to talk about the law uh, <laughs> incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that the basic understanding is that um, governments that are party to what's called the Rome Statute, who buy into the idea of the International Criminal Court, can refer uh, also when they can't or won't do it then the Security Council can do this. And that brings quickly to mind the the horrible events we've seen in Syria for seven years where there is no doubt that there have been war crimes or mass crimes committed by the government of Syria, but that Russia has vetoed these ICC uh, referrals and and investigations uh, 10 or 11 times. And so the question to Myanmar is, is it possible for the International Criminal Court to be activated or to jump in in a way that doesn't require the support of Myanmar or risk a veto by China. And so it's, you know, comparing this to other places, it's early days uh, in the process. So right now what we're focused on is really digging in, collecting the forensic evidence that we know how to collect um, so that, you know, when there is a prosecution, we can um, contribute to the process. China is allied with Myanmar. Uh, I, you know, I think that China has made statements in general questioning the need for any kind of 
international accountability mechanism. So mm-hmm. uh, to that extent, yes. Let me let me just shift because the the what I said at the beginning is 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 the attempt to try to widen the focus of our concerns about what's going on in the world. Has PHR uh, had people on the ground in Yemen in the recent past? So we uh, are doing program work in Yemen. Uh, what we've been doing most recently is putting out reports about uh, and tracking attacks on healthcare facilities, and that's something that. We have been doing in Syria for a couple of years. We have a big map where we document uh, attacks on healthcare facilities, hospitals in Syria, and we've started to do the same thing in Yemen uh, by cultivating ground sources. And so, um, we, uh, because we've had some success in generating data that's reliable in Syria, we're trying to we're working to establish a similar foothold in Yemen, which is a you know different campaign, but it's obviously a, a, a very horrible public health, and uh, human rights disaster. And and uh, since your organization seems to specialize in, in forensics, um, it just occurs to me to ask, have, have you been called in in any way to assist with the investigation into the uh, apparent poisoning of uh, the two individuals in London recently? Uh, we, we have not. Um, we generally... Uh, are involved in documentation and also advocacy when they're, when, um, you know, not to say that these aren't violations, but they fall more closely into the realm of a crime than a human rights violation, mm-hmm. that is to stay. Uh, but, um, um, and personally, as, you know, uh, like you and probably many, uh, I've been following it with great interest because mm-hmm. it really uh, is astounding. Uh, yeah, it, it's astounding, and, and particularly the, the the recent denouement, where uh, at least one of them has walked out the door of a hospital, um, seemingly um, not fully recovered, but uh, not what you normally think of as a victim of a of a serious nerve gas attack. Yeah, that that is a very happy development. I I note that the the perpetrators of this event will also have uh, induced the ire of pet lovers everywhere because I saw that the uh, cat and yeah. the guinea pigs in their house did not make it. Yeah. Um, how how common is it, uh, in, in your knowledge as a physician, for somebody to be dosed with a, a nerve gas uh, substance, I don't know if you're familiar with this particular one, and survive it? Um, I think that the the use of sarin in particular or VX or other nerve agents, I think that it actually is quite an infrequent occurrence that it's used and that it's often fatal when it is used. So I think that's a rare event. I think where I've seen some similar uh, poisonings where people do recover is uh, the the kind of active ingredient in a lot of these agents is an organophosphate that's a chemical that's involved uh, that causes the sweating, that uh, changes to the pupils um, and some respiratory distress. And actually, I've Originally, having trained in the Midwest, I saw this in um, especially undocumented farm workers who get mm-hmm. pesticide poisoning. Mm-hmm. Those pesticides have the same mm-hmm. organophosphate uh, base that sometimes will leave them, and they, with atropine, which, uh, can can survive. Mm. It, it, an American who's listening and uh, gets overwhelmed, you know, I think one of the reasons why the media don't, uh, aside from lack of resources, one of the reasons why the media only focuses on one. A set of horrific events at a time is uh, well, people will get overwhelmed and sort of paralyzed and not know what to do or what. 
an American who who hears about the again here's that word the plight of the Rohingya, um, what what would you like what would you like them to do? You know, I think there are a couple of things. I think the first is there are many organizations that are working so valiantly to provide humanitarian assistance. So the you know the the MSF, uh, Med Global, the other medical organizations that are there providing this care, the UN organizations are doing a great job. So that's an important uh, set of efforts. I think that you know what's critical is that if we ever want to prevent effectively prevent these mass atrocities, these mass crimes, then we have to become honest about the accountability. I mean, the reason that Syria has prevailed on Russia for these 10 or 11 vetoes is because they're terrified of accountability. The reason that, uh, you know, we're worried about accountability in uh, with for the Rohingya is because, we're, you know, everybody's wondering what will China do if there's any international criminal court discussion. And so we have to be honest about our own role as a nation and think about what are we doing? Do we buy into this idea of accountability? Because on the day that one arm of our foreign policy apparatus was condemning Russia uh, and Syria for their roles in these attacks in Duma, uh, it was the first day for John Bolton on the job. And that's somebody who runs our national security apparatus. And he he expressed glee uh, in his prior iteration at withdrawing from the, the Rome Statute, which is the treaty that establishes the International Criminal Court. So we can't get upset about these atrocities and seek to bang our fists on the table if we can't ourselves uh, make a commitment to accountability. Are you uh, planning another trip back to uh, the uh, the border lands between uh, Myanmar and, and uh, Bangladesh in the near future? Uh, I think we'll have uh, several more trips uh, in the near future. I think that now that we have a great network of physicians that I've gone with, and um, I think you know they're many of them more expert than I am. Um, I'm eager in the coming months to turn our eye both towards sharing the evidence with uh, with UN bodies and others, and also I'm eager for us at PHR to really dig in uh, deeply to a domestic agenda that includes. Um, you know, documentation of human rights abuses by our own that involve our own immigration policies that involve uh, you know correctional settings, jails, and prisons, which is uh, you know was my background before I started with PHR. Mm. And and uh, just to to wrap it up about the Rohingya, they don't feel they can go back to Burma, but they can't stay in refugee camps forever, or can they? Well, I think the the horrible reality of refugee camps is people do stay for years and years and years. I think that the what's untenable is how close the quarters are and the fact that it's going to rain and there will be these mudslides. So uh, like a small group of people, the biggest camp, Kutapalong, uh, there's been an effort to move some people out of that, the most dense area, into another area. But I will say that people who you know are f- far more wise than I am in – uh, management of these situations are scratching their heads about what will happen because the it's quite clear that people will be killed uh, if they go back, and it's also quite clear that the place they are in cannot sustain them. And so it's a very difficult quandary, and I think that what's already happened is that the people on the ground feel like this, has, as you referenced, uh, slipped off the front page. And, um, you know, the resources that Bangladesh needs to provide humanitarian assistance in a humane uh, and safe setting is becoming more and more difficult.
Dr. Homer Venters of uh, Physicians for Human Rights, thank you very much for sharing your information and your insight with us today. Thank you, Harry. You say you wonder why folks have to hate and hurt one another. Why they can't stay even, Stephen, and live brother to brother. You can wonder in one hand and spit in the other. Cause baby, you don't really want to know. How come there's always plenty money? For some bullets and some bombs But there's never enough for some nurses Or some teachers Or some moms Ain't it cheaper filling frigid airs Than filling up tombs You don't really want to know Watch the world through the windshield Of a Cosmobile Stop to scrape away the bugs that down it. You don't know or care what's changing hands underneath the table. Just as long as it's got plain apple on it. How come terrorists and Texas T boys share the same last name? Power brokers play with politics like some petty private game. And no matter who you vote for, who you get is just the same. Oh, baby, you don't really want to know. Really want to know? You know 
This is the show, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Making up in uh, quality, but it lacks in quantity. The apologies of the week, because you start with the Pope. How many weeks can you do that? Dayline, Vatican City, Pope Francis acknowledged this week he had made a great he had made grave mistakes in the handling of a sexual abuse crisis in Chile, saying he felt shame and inviting victims he'd once doubted to Rome to seek their forgiveness personally. The letter followed a visit to Chile by one of the Vatican's most experienced sexual abuse investigators, like they have a core of them. And this is the best, Archbishop Charles Scucciana of Malta. Quote, I have made grave mistakes in the assessment and my perception of the situation, due in particular to a lack of truthful and balanced information, the Pope wrote in an extraordinary letter to Chilean bishops. Scaluna was uh, investigating claims surrounding Bishop Juan Barros, appointed by the Pope in 2015, despite accusations that Barros had covered up the sexual abuse of minors by his mentor, Father Fernando Caradima. In the three-page letter, written in Espanol, the head of the Roman Catholic Church said he wanted to, quote, reestablish trust in the church, trust that was broken by our errors and sins, and heal the wounds that continue to bleed in Chilean society. Reading the report from his um, emissary calls him, quote, pain and shame. I apologize to all those I have offended, and I hope to be able to do it personally in the coming weeks in the meetings I will have with victims, the Pope said in the letter. The letter gave no clue about Barros' future. He had said in January, the day I see proof against Bishop Barros, then I will talk. There is no single piece of evidence against him. It is all slander. Is that clear? Unquote the Pope in January. Motivational, speaking of motivational speakers, Tony Robbins has apologized after suggesting that some women are using the Me Too movement to gain, quote, significance through, quote, victimhood. Remarks that drew severe backlash from people, including the founder of a Me Too movement. Robbins made the controversial comments last month in San Jose, where he was hosting one of his multi-day self-help seminars. Still, really? Robbins is best known for self-help books and massive seminars that promise to help people, quote, get the life you desire and deserve. The exchange on uh, YouTube from this uh, one event lasted more than 10 minutes, included tense moments in which Robbins got in uh, a woman's face and towered over her. At one point, he engaged the woman in an exercise where he physically pushed her backward by her fist in an effort to demonstrate that her pushing back against his physical actions didn't make her any safer. Now he's posted an apology in San Jose to his Facebook page saying he was committed to being part of the solution. I apologize for suggesting anything other than my profound admiration for the Me Too movement. Let me clearly say I agree with the goals of the Me Too movement and its founding message of empowerment through empathy, which makes it a beautiful force for good. What I've realized is while I've been dedicating my life to working with victims of abuse all over the world, I need to get connected to the brave women of Me Too. So he's looking for a date? I probably misunderstood that. Jimmy Kimmel, TV host, 
in the United States. Apologized this week for his part in a feud with TV host Sean Hannity. Quote, while I admit I did have fun with our back and forth, after some thought I realized the level of vitriol from all sides does nothing good for anyone and is in fact harmful to society. I apologize. I will take Sean Hannity at his word that he was genuinely offended by what I believed and still believe to be a harmless and silly aside referencing our first lady's accent. Accent? I have no accent. Deadline Berlin, a deputy leader of the nationalist Alternative for Germany party, apologized this week for falsely blaming a fatal van attack in Münster on Islamic extremists. Beatrix von Storch said on her Facebook page, quote, I made a mistake with my tweet about Münster, and I'm sorry. The apology comes after widespread criticism of her tweet suggesting Chancellor Angela Merkel's open-door refugee policy was to blame after a van drove into a crowd last Saturday. When authorities revealed the van's driver to be a German with no known extremist links, von Storch initially doubled down, tweeting that the suspect was, quote, an imitator of Islamist terror. And the second largest te telecom company in Australia, Optus, has apologized for a job advertisement seeking, quote, Anglo-Saxon candidates, unquote. Optus said in the ad that it was looking for a retail assistant to work at one of its stores near Sydney, company said it preferred Anglo-Saxon candidates who lived close to the store. Fantastic opportunity for those seeking a career in retail. Optus took down the ad and apologized the next day after facing a storm of criticism. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You probably know by now that Pre <laughs> President Trump has pardoned Scooter Libby, who was uh, chief of staff for former Vice President Cheney during the Bush administration. Libby had been found guilty of... Um, leaking the name of an um, undercover CIA uh, uh, official, operative, operative, operator, uh, Valerie Plame. Libby uh, supposedly did that at the behest of uh, his boss, although there's no proof of that. President Bush commuted Libby's 30-month prison sentence. He was found guilty, but didn't issue a pardon despite intense pressure from Cheney. That decision by Bush is uh, re widely reported to have uh, created a rift in the relationship between Bush and Cheney, even though Cheney was reportedly vastly relieved that Libby would not have to spend time in prison. The soul of loyalty wouldn't even look at a drink. Now it's the reward of royalty. Scooters skating past the clink. He was my personal Dick Cheney. More secret than you'd think. How brawny was his brainy. Scooters scooting by the clink. Scooters sliding by the clink. Irvin's hoofing by the hooskow. Parading past the pokey. Libby almost ended up like Liddy. Moral clarity. Almost jokey. No cooler for the scooter. In a way. That was the point. He's still free to bend over 
Scooters rescued from the joint. Scooters rescued from the joint. He was the Poobah of discretion. His pee wouldn't make a blink. He'll create his best impression as he walks straight by the clink. He was an agent's outer, just tasked to make a stink. He was a rumor's router, but he won't be leaking in the clink. No, leaking in the clink. up a wrapper. Trousers getting looser. Surveilled within the crapper. Maybe even go in bruiser. No cooler for the scooter. The fall guy didn't disappoint. Thank God we were there to catch him. Scooters sliding by the joint. Scooters skating by the joint. Scooters rescued from the joint. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? Award-winning news of the warm. Not good news, unfortunately. Soft, listen to the warm. Well, the Gulf Stream current, the warm Atlantic current linked to severe and abrupt changes in the climate in the past, is now at its weakest in at least 1,600 years, according to new research. Based on multiple lines of scientific evidence, the findings throw into question previous predictions that a catastrophic collapse of the Gulf Stream would take centuries to occur. Au contraire, mein frère. Such a collapse would see Western Europe suffer from far more extreme winters, sea levels rise fast on the eastern seaboard of the United States, and would disrupt vital tropical rains. The current is now 15% weaker than around 400 A.D., an exceptionally large deviation, Human-caused global warming is responsible for at least a significant part of the awakening. Sorry, of the weakening, according to the study. Serious disruption to the Gulf Stream ocean currents must be avoided at all costs, according to senior scientists who've spoken to the Guardian newspaper. Past collapses of the giant network have seen some of the most extreme impacts in climate history, as I say, with Western Europe particularly vulnerable to a descent into freezing winters. It's also likely to cause more severe storms in Europe, faster sea level rise on the east coast of the U.S., increasing drought in the Sahel. They need that. The new research worries scientists because of the huge impact global warming has already had on the currents and the unpredictability, the unknowability at this point, of a future tipping point. The... Uh, Gulf Stream is the most significant control on northern hemisphere climate outside of the atmosphere, but the system has weakened 
as we say, by 15% thanks to melting Greenland ice and ocean warming. That makes the seawater less dense and more buoyant. This represents a massive slowdown equivalent to halting all the world's rivers three times over or stopping the Amazon 15 times. Such weakening hasn't been seen in at least the last 1,600 years. That's as far back as researchers have analyzed so far. And the weakening is accelerating. We're dealing with a system that in some aspects is highly nonlinear, so fiddling with it is very dangerous because you may well trigger some surprises, says Professor Stephen Ramstorff at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, one of the world's leading oceanographers. He led some of the new research. I wish I knew where this critical tipping point is, but that's unfortunately just what we don't know. We should avoid disrupting the current at all costs. It is one more reason why we should stop global warming as soon as possible. Unquote. And more bad news for the bees. Bees and other critical pollinators in the food chain face new threats as plants produce fewer flowers during droughts, which are made more frequent and intense by climate change, according to new research. Researchers from the University of Exeter in England studied the impact of droughts on flower-producing plants in areas with prolonged periods of doubt, drought. They produced about half as many flowers as usual. The plants we, we examined responded to drought in various ways, from producing fewer flowers to producing flowers that contained no nectar, said a researcher at Exeter. The production of flowers, as you may know, if you remember your biology, is critical to bees and other pollinators. They visit for the nectar and pollen that they need, you know, to live. The gradual decline of pollinator food sources will impact not only bees, but other insects and animals in their habitats. Not only are these insects vital as pollinators of crops and wild plants, but they also provide food for many birds and mammals, said an Exeter researcher. With climate change, droughts are expected to become more common and more intense in many parts of the world, according to the study. Bees are already under pressure from a variety of threats, including habitat loss, synthetic pesticides, your neonics, the spread of various diseases, the introduction of invasive species in their habitats, and Facebook trolls. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Just one note about microplastics. Many organic fertilizers being applied to gardens and farms contain those tiny fragments of plastic. According to a new study, widely considered a problem affecting the oceans, this work suggests microplastics may actually be far more pervasive. On the, uh, the other thing in the world, land, having entered the soil, the scientists behind the study have warned these tiny fragments 
could end up in our food. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over the audio device of your choice, your time of listening. And it'd be just like not eating if you'd agree to join me then. Would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desk. Thanks to Paul Roost at Argo Studios in New York and John Vogel at Apex Post here in New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email, uh, oh, and thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for their help. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to purchase some Cars I Talk t-shirts for your entire extended family, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. Friendly reminder, the show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the Crescent City.